0: All right, I'm actually going to be reading our scripture this morning, um, which comes from Acts 2, um, 1 through 13. If you'd like to open up your Bibles or your Bible app, um, you're welcome to follow along on the screens as well. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that every one of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of our God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all, and kudos to Linnea for getting through all of those different locations and ancient cities. Uh, that is, that's not always, it's always like anxiety if you have to read scripture and there's a bunch of weird names from the Old Testament or locations that you've never read before and trying to muffle your way through, but well done. Um, we've been in this if-then series, right, considering that if Jesus really did resurrect from the dead, then What? Well, in today's lesson, we look at the follow up to Jesus' earthly ministry, in a sense, the sending of His his Spirit to the people of God to empower them to continue the ministry that He established while His time on earth. But that actually brings up the first issue we need to address, which is what is Pentecost? Well, the the text mentions that this event takes place on Pentecost. And if you're at all familiar with the story, we're paying attention for the last five minutes. And hopefully you're aware that's when the Holy Spirit comes on the, the first believers. And they, the Holy Spirit brings on them this new power, this ability, uh, first speaking in the different, different tongues, and then we see throughout the rest of the book of Acts all these other signs and miracles that they're able to perform, right? But let's be honest. When we think about the Holy Spirit, it feels like sometimes the Holy Spirit gets short shrift when we're doing our theological considerations, right? It's really easy to imagine the Father, for instance, you know, speaking things into creation on Genesis chapter 1 or... Speaking to Moses in the burning bush, perhaps, or sending the plagues on Egypt. You know, we think, oh, there's God the Father, righteous and powerful and, and mighty and things like that. And it's pretty easy to imagine the sun as well. We have we have pictures of the sun. We have a way to uh, to picture Jesus, um, the, the Savior, the Rescuer, the incarnate God-man, right? He's both one with the Father and also sits next to the Father on the, on, on the throne room, which that's confusing, but still, we kind of get to think about Jesus, and obviously we're, we're Christocentric people, we're Christians, we follow after Jesus. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, sometimes we kind of get left with, you know, what exactly does the Holy Spirit do? What would you say you do, Holy Spirit, right? Well, let me say a few words about what the Holy Spirit is not before we get to what, God, what the Holy Spirit is. First of all, Sorry to all you Star Wars fans out there, but the but this Holy Spirit is not like the force in Star Wars. Some kind of impersonal, uh, you know, nebulous thing that allows you to move rocks with your mind or, you know, stop laser beams. That's not what the Holy Spirit's about, all right? The Holy Spirit is a person, just like the Father, just like the Son. The Holy Spirit is personal. And when we think, when we look back into the Christian tradition... As far back as St. Augustine, so we're talking 4th, 5th century here, and actually even earlier than that. Uh, St. Augustine describes the Spirit as the bond of love between the Father and the Son. And this bond of love allows the Father and the Son to love one another perfectly, right? We talk about how God is love. First John references God is love. Well, God can only be love if God has three persons in relationship, and there is a perfect bond of love between the Father and the Son. The father is able to perfectly give that love to the son. The son is able to receive that love perfectly. There's no indebtedness. There's no lording over. There's no, kind of inde- there's no uh, hierarchy there in that sense. They are one in each other. There's this actually beautiful word in Greek, perichoresis. Perichoresis. And it's where we get the word choreograph from. It's for dancing. And so there's this imaging uh, of this language of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in this kind of cosmic and eternal dance of joy that they do with one another. And that, that joy and that love, that abundance, flows forth and pours out into creation. So the Holy Spirit is part of that and the bond that brings them together. The Holy Spirit and God and God's Trinity—it's not like Voltron. I don't know if how many of you guys are uh, fans of the '80s cartoon Voltron. Right? Five robot lions form one giant robot samurai to defeat cosmic enemies. I grew up watching that, right? But that's not the way that that God works. It's not three parts of God who then kind of form together to one form one mega mega powerful God. God is, in fact, persons in relationship. Sharing of the divine essence. And so that means that the fundamental, at the fundamental heart of reality, is persons in relationship, being in relationship. Now, the story that we read takes place on Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, and it was commemorating originally the Jewish festival of weeks. Now, that is a festival that was initiated back in the Old Testament as a celebration of the wheat harvest, right? They were agrarian people, they were farmers, they had celebrations for harvest and and, uh, planting and things like that. But more importantly, the Feast of Weeks and Pentecost was a recognition or remembrance of when God gave his law to Moses on Mount Sinai in the wilderness, the Torah the first five books of the Bible is sometimes known as, or sometimes known as the law. But really, a, a helpful way to think about this is a guidance, a tutor, to help the people of Israel become more holy. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, later on in one of his, in one of his letters of Galatians, talks about the law as a tutor, as a guide, which is supposed to bring us, bring people towards Jesus Christ. Um... But as we see the remembrance of this first law, it makes perfect sense that this would be the day that God would designate sending his spirit on his people. For it is the spirit who then transforms us, not from outside conforming as the law does, but from inside transforming us into being more and more like God and and Jesus Christ. Right? We have these two kinds of law. The one from the outside, another, what we call heteronymous, that it kind of imposes a conformity on what it means to be holy. But when we see the Holy Spirit comes on these people, it brings about transformation from the inside. Think about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Paul says, against such things there is no law. We don't need a law. For the Holy Spirit guides us and transforms us from within. And that internal reality springs forth into our external actions. So this law or tutor 2.0, which is the Holy Spirit, in a sense, comes not from outside, but from within, within the person to transform us. Right? When we think about what is it that the Holy Spirit actually does, one of the, the traditional words that we talk about is sanctification. That's a big fancy word. It just basically means God is at work in you and me to make us more like God, to help us to trust in God more, to have our actions in alignment with the, with the way God would have us to be. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, which is why the fruit of the Holy Spirit, this natural outpouring, are the things that we just listed. Now, notice that the the way the Spirit comes on the disciples as tongues of fire. And it allows these disciples initially to speak in languages maybe they've never even heard of or certainly never studied. By and large, these disciples were uneducated. They were fishermen and other things. But any kind of engaged reader of the text would always want to ask, why would God choose this as the mode that he would display his power? Could have done it in any kind of way. And in fact, throughout the rest of Acts and in Scripture, we see plenty of ways that the Holy Spirit manifests itself in various ways and powers. But why these languages? Why would that be the first sign that God uses and manifests for the Holy Spirit? Well, again, we're in this now, uh, if and then series, right? So if Jesus really resurrected from the dead, and if God has sent his Spirit to dwell among his people and empower them, then of course it would make perfect sense that the first sign of the Holy Spirit would be for these various languages to be spoken, for all different types of people to be able to hear the gospel. Because if we see, actually going back to the first chapter of Acts, the author Luke kind of front loads his book with his initial thesis or uh, intent for what the whole book of Acts is all about. So back in Acts 1, Luke remembers the words of Jesus before he ascends back to the Father. And he says a mission statement, if you will, for the rest of the book of Acts. And really for the church itself. Acts 1 says this. He said to them, that's Jesus he, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. Literally the Greek there is martyrs. You will be my martyrs. You will testify to me in Jerusalem, which is where they were, Judea, which is the surrounding area that they resided in, Samaria, just north of them, and to the ends of the earth. That's the mission statement. And this is essentially Luke's thesis, which the rest of Acts illuminates. The power of the Holy Spirit will enable the disciples to continue the work Christ established while on earth, which is utterly consistent with the way that Jesus himself ministered while here. Think about back in John chapter 14, where Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. You see, just as Jesus was sent to earth, if you're a disciple of Christ, if you are a follower of God, then you are sent as well. God equips us for going on for going on mission to, for the church, and to be on mission means to be sent with intent. God has a mission for us. God has a plan, and just when something is sent, and just as when something is sent through the mail, or you send a ball through the air, or the military sends a missile, it's sent with intent. It has a purpose. There is an end goal in mind. Why something is sent. That's what it means to be on mission. God the Father sends the Spirit on us and, and His people and He expects that those people will witness, testify, be martyrs in their neighborhoods in Jerusalem, the surrounding areas of Judea, going up north to Samaritans, right? Which we know would have been the last people on planet Earth that the Jewish people would have thought would have been part of God's people. And then from there, to the unknown regions, places they didn't know about, peoples they'd never heard of, languages they have never experienced. God's desire for his people would be to wit- be witnesses of the good news of Jesus Christ, both to your neighbors and to those who you would rather have nothing to do with, as in the Samaritans, and then to those who you don't even know. There's kind of concentric circles working out in the book of Acts, where the gospel spreads forth. And it's not long after in this book of Acts that we see all kinds of interesting characters who initially would have never been considered part of God's family. The Ethiopian eunuch, Cornelius the Roman soldier, the Samaritans start receiving the gospel and and believing as their Lord and Savior. Now, this claim is a real challenge for many of us. And part of that is because we've grown up in a modern liberal society. And by liberal, I don't mean conservative and, and, and uh, Democrat or something like that. But liberal as in a, a, a philosophical term, kind of considering for the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment thinkers. So if you study the, the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment philosophical, philosophical thinkers that largely influenced our, uh, our way of thinking, what they've tried to do is privatize religion... And highlight tolerance. And what that looks like, and which I do believe has largely come to pass, what that looks like in our society today is summed up by the nice little phrase, you do you. Right? You ever heard that? You do you? What the young folks are all saying? As long as your religion or your beliefs aren't hurting somebody else, let them do what you want. Right? But that's not what we see in Scripture. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to be respectful. There's a way to present the gospel, to be witnesses while still being respectful to one another. We don't have to go down and harass people with a bullhorn like the baseball stadiums. That's not what I'm asking. But if Jesus really died, if Jesus really died and resurrected to bring reconciliation and new life, and God sent his spirit to empower his followers to carry that mission to the ends of the earth, And we have seen that even the earliest signs of the Christians, the followers of God, were so convinced by the importance of this message and this mission that they were willing to be imprisoned and beaten and stoned and killed for it, then I don't think you can say that faith is a private matter. Personal? Yes. Private? No way. A private gospel is a neutered gospel. Now, I just got done explaining how Christians sharing their faith isn't optional. It's not a path for some people, but not for others. But that being said, there's two sides to this Pentecost coin. And we see that the Spirit's empowering gift allows people to speak many languages so that the gospel can be shared with all kinds of different people. But just as Pentecost is connected to an Old Testament festival, much of Jesus' life and death and the early church's mission is an extension of the story of the Old Testament. So here we are in Jerusalem. We have the Jewish speakers, the followers of Christ, and there are, essentially, speakers from all over the known world there. languages being spoken. It's a cosmopolitan hub, if you will, of various cultures and tribes intersecting. And normally, I don't know how many of you have ever, have ever been to a, a, a town or a, a location that feels really cosmopolitan where there's all these languages being spoken. I remember going to London and feeling that way, um, for instance. But there can be a lot of confusion, right? I speak one language, you speak another language, and you're doing a lot of hand signals and gestures to try to figure out how to, how to communicate. But there's not a lot of uh, unity going on there. So if this is a continuation of the Old Testament stories, we need to think about when did this experience, when did this multiple languages and confusion first take place? Where do we see that? The Tower of Babel, all the way back in the ancient story in the beginning of Genesis, right? The Tower of Babel uh, is where you have some of the first people on earth. God tells them to go spread out, fill, and subdue the earth, They refuse and reject to do that. They stay in one location. They build a city. And in that city, they build a big tower. And it's a tower that's kind of a a monument to their own pride and ingenuity. They actually think it's reaching up to the heavens in this kind of beautiful uh, way that the text says, after they're done building the tower, as they're building the tower up, God has to come down from heaven and kind of crouch down to see what they're doing. Right? They, They think they're so good and big and mighty and God has to crouch down to see what they're doing. So he, he comes down and he sees what they're doing and realizes they're not doing what he asked them to do to spread out and subdue and fill the earth as he asked. So he adds various languages into their midst to confuse them. So now that they can't really work together. And it's at that point that they spread out through the earth as was actually commanded all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. So all of a sudden, we're in Jerusalem. Thousands of years later. And God is at work again. Although this time, he doesn't introduce confusion in order for the people to spread out. He, he introduces a new competency for understanding. The disciples are now able to speak many languages in other people's tongues. Now, there's some really interesting things to note here. And one is that God doesn't just simply reverse his earlier actions. Right? Instead, the Spirit doesn't unify them into one global language again, as was in in the early times. The Spirit empowers every person to be understood in their own tongue. And so I imagine that these hearers of the gospel, in their own language, would have gone back to their own towns and villages, retelling in their language what they heard and experienced on that Pentecost day. The message of God is, again, filling the whole earth, just as God wanted all the way back in the beginning. That's always been the design. That's always been the purpose. Now, this has real consequences for us today. One implication is that God is a God of all peoples, all cultures, and all tribes. The end of the story of Revelation, we have this beautiful scene in the throne room. And the text says that John sees people from every tongue and tribe and nation, bowing down and worshiping God in glory. In God's work to reconcile the world to himself, it's not about conformity to a specific culture or language as we see in other religions like in Islam, for instance. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform every culture into God-fearing people. If you notice anything or you know anything about the, uh, the faith of Islam, you'll know that Arabic is the official language of the religion. It was spoken by Muhammad. It's what the Quran was written in. And any other, transla- any other Quran in any other language is technically a translation. It's not the official Quran. You're supposed to pray in Arabic. That's the that's way it is. There are certain features about what it looks like to be a good uh, Muslim man or a good Muslim woman. And yet we don't see that in Christianity. While the Bible was written in Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic and Greek, the reality is we don't say that a a French version or a Japanese version or an English version of the Bible is, is just a mere translation. No, it is the Bible. It is the Word of God. Because we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to meet us in our culture and honor that. God is not about dissolving all of us into one universal culture. He honors where we come from. And the languages that we speak. What we see throughout the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit's presence in the church, bringing about a unity through plurality, plurality. I can't say that word. Plurality. There we go. And diversity. It's not diversity just for diversity's sake, it's diversity because it enriches the lives of the fellow believers. One body, many parts, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. Now, besides the miracles of healing in the book of Acts, where we see people like Peter and Paul uh, as a mark of the early church and the power of the Spirit, one of the important initial marks of the early church and the power of the Spirit in this church is the community in a common life shared together. One is where it says that members of the churches were sharing what they had with everyone else so that no one was in need. That bond... That unity is a sign of the Holy Spirit, but that unity doesn't come at the expense of individual cultures or languages. You see, we don't have to conform to some universal privileged culture. Each person, whatever their language, their color, their culture, is transformed in the likeness of Jesus Christ. As we consider this Pentecost Sunday and reflect on the implications of that first Sunday, I wonder... How well are we testifying? How well are we bearing witness to the risen Lord in our own lives? And how are we united to our fellow Christ believers? Have you been operating under the assumption that faith is just merely a private matter and not something for public discussion in the public square? Are we in unity with our fellow believers or does discord and dissension reside within these walls and among these relationships? Come Holy Spirit, come upon us now in your power. Enable us, bring witness to the goodness of God to all those we encounter. May your spirit reside in this body that we may be one, united in our common mission, sent with intent, amen. As we close our service, brothers and sisters, receive the benediction. May you go out into a world in desperate need of God's truth and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform from the inside out. May the Spirit be upon you to develop and grow the fruits of the Spirit within your life so that those you encounter would see the witness, the the testifying of God's grace in your life. And may you experience the peace that comes with being free in God. Go in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.